0: Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the life and work of a great psychic and psychical researcher, Dr. Alex Tanis. My guest is Callum Cooper a psychical researcher from the United Kingdom who was the co-author of a book with Dr. Tannis. The book was written posthumously on the part of Dr. Tannis. The Alex Tannis Foundation commissioned Cal Cooper to write this book based on an unfinished document that Alex Tannis had prepared. Now, Cal, some of our viewers will remember, is also the author of Telephone Calls from the Dead, about which we've done a previous interview. But now, I will switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Cal. It's a pleasure to be with you again.
1: Oh, thanks for having me again, Jeff. It's a real pleasure.
0: Now, you were invited by the Alex Tannis Foundation to uh, take three chapters of a book he had started on and basically complete the book uh, for him. That must have been uh, quite a project.
1: Yeah, that that was still early days as well. I didn't know anything about Alex Tannis for a long while in parapsychology, and it was 2010 I was the joint Parapsychological Association Student Representative, um, along with um, Everard Renard, as well in France. And he highlighted it to me. They got a scholarship award for students for $500, and then they'd send along some books and some other supporting things. And so I applied for it, and I got it. Um, But I'd already, uh, once i won it, I decided to buy his autobiography and, and read it and got to know a bit more about him. And it was um, through that that um, eventually I looked at some of the digital archives that would already been filing, found this three-chapter-long potential book, and it was after a few years of getting to know them, I said, would you like this kind of expanding with his other work and see if we can get some sort of book out of it? So they, they were delighted because the, the last book they'd seen by Alex was in 1990, um, about three or four months after he died. So nothing had really come out. Uh, he wasn't really... in in public awareness for a long time and not even really in parapsychology's awareness for a long time.
0: Well, you know, that's really true. I uh, try to stay on top of the parapsychological literature, and I was aware that Alex Tanis was a a star subject in out-of-body experience research, uh, but I knew nothing more than that about him. So, uh, reading your book was an eye-opener for me. I I didn't realize that he worked for 20 years at the American Society for Psychical Research and was engaged – as not just a research subject, but a researcher himself. In fact, I have to say, after just reading your introduction, uh, Alex Tanis is one of the most amazing people in the field of parapsychology.
1: He's certainly unique, isn't he? I mean, he's not one of the the first kind of, um, I suppose he's not your traditional parapsychologist. He's not someone that would be well-read on the literature, but in terms of someone who knows how to conduct research and and how to do scholarly work with the kind of background he had. He had five degrees. He knew how to do that. Um, And and he'd go by the title of parapsychologist sometimes, but I, I don't think he was kind of on the same level as you or I, where I could list off a load of names and you'd either know those people or have met them, Jeff, and worked with them at some point and vice versa, we could do the same. Um, and, and we could know where that item is in a journal or in a book. Um, Alex wasn't like that, but he was certainly um, very good at networking and, and very good at building contacts and getting things done. Um, and and yeah, so uniquely, he was up there with people like Eileen Garrett, who said, not only do I have these abilities, please put them to the test. And when you're doing that, I'd love to know more. And I'd like to encourage this kind of um, Scientific endeavor as well. So, yeah, twenty years at the American Society for Psychical Research, um, looking at three different things specifically. So, as you mentioned, uh, continuous testing of his alleged out-of-body state, which he discovered as a child um, when he was—I used to do this as well. He'd go up the steps in the family home and he'd jump down the steps onto cushions and pillows, and to see, you know, how high could he get out without hurting himself and jumping down higher and higher. And he was having so much fun. It was in that state that we call flow, where you've entered this altered state of consciousness and you're in the zone and time flies when you're having fun. And on one of the jumps, didn't hurt himself, but he was just lost in the moment, looked back up the stairs and sees an apparition of himself at the same age looking down at him. And he said that in that moment, he could also see himself from the second version of himself through that eye eye line, through that vision. Looking back down, he got the vision of both parties, and he called this external version of him Alex II, which he used for traveling the world when he was in the outer body state, so he could recognize his own bi-location, as it were. Uh, there's a few really interesting reports of him allegedly by locating and interacting with people, two specific ones where he turned up at people's houses, where one, a dog was barking at the apparition of him at the door and they moved the dog back. And when they went back to the door, he wasn't there anymore. And another one that's far more kind of, um, you know, eye-opening is in the middle of the night, he was staying at the American society for psychical research, he was doing some out of body tests at the time. And he had a dream that he was visiting a friend in Canada. Um, they awoke in bed to the sound of the door ringing and the husband went downstairs. The wife was listening out to see who it was. It, it was just late at night. They'd just gone to bed. So we we're talking 1030, something like that. Alex was at the door and he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to wake you. I was just passing by and I, I just wanted to check on the off chance if you're up, but we'll catch up some other time. The guy said, don't be silly. Let's come in and have a quick chat. They made him a cup of tea. The guy sat down with him, drank the tea and he said, look, we'll sort something out. I was just passing by, sees Alex to the door. Let's him out. The wife had been hearing some of this conversation as well. And he waited just in case Alex was having any car trouble because it was snowing and um, didn't hear the car drive away. So he opens the door and looks and there's no sign of Alex or the car, nor is there any sign of any footprints in the snow leading to or away from the door. And when Alex woke up, he wrote about his experience of having this dream, and the couple wrote about their experience of being with Alex and having this cup of tea and sent them to the ASPR, and um, Dr. Carlos Osis gathered, signed affidavits from both of them. So that was, that was one of the more unique bi-locations. So he was tested for that. He was interested in exploring survival, particularly through hauntings and ghosts, and he was also tested for his ability to allegedly project light from his eyes.
0: I, I have to say, the story of bilocation, where you have sworn affidavits from all of the parties involved, sounds like uh, potentially one of the strongest case histories of bilocation on record.
1: Yeah, I mean, mean, it sounds ridiculous, and I'm I'm a sceptical activist, but I'm also heavily involved in parent psychology. You know, the account is what it is, and you're like, (laughs) what do I do with that? Because you've got interaction, another witness that's hearing the conversation, so the person's definitely speaking to someone else, and you're left with two empty teacups at the end of it as well unless the person one was hallucinating and creating a second voice somehow and drank both the cups of tea. I mean, it, it's very, very unusual. And it doesn't seem to be a complete case of mistaken identity either. I mean, that he knows it's Alex. Alex has dreamt this situation. And the person clearly had Alex's personality and knowledge. So it's, it's very, very unusual, but not unheard of either. I mean, there are many cases of bilocation
0: well the the intriguing thing is now that Alex actually put this ability to use as a researcher. You report on one fascinating case where he he was in the laboratory of the American Society for Psychical Research in Manhattan and uh visited a uh poltergeist uh home as I recall it was in Iowa thousands of miles away, or over a thousand
1: is just a bunch of different investigations in there, really, and, and some of these unique instances of him not always going to the location, but sometimes remote viewing, going in this, in a way, in this out-of-body state and, and going to actually look around the location. So there's a few accounts of that happening. And there are many more. I, I know there are. They are inside the American Society for Psychical Research. I was inside there in 2015. I saw the boxes, and I, grr, I just want my hands on them. I, I really do, but, mm, yeah... There's so much more to tell.
0: Well, let, let's start with uh, the research conducted by Dr. Carlos Osis on Alex Tannis's out of body travels uh, and his ability to generate an out of body state.
1: Yeah. So that came about when um, Alex was tentatively looking into the question of survival. And he was working um, for a hospital um, in the end of life care unit, thinking that as someone that believed they had psychic abilities and could contact the dead, um, he thought it would tell him a lot more about survival to be with people at the end of life and people that actually he saw to the point of death as well. Um, He admitted that it taught him nothing whatsoever, um, just apart from human compassion and looking after people in those situations and the importance of it. And not putting this kind of situation death and dying behind closed doors either it's something that we should be more open to and aware of and care for those people rather than shut them out but it was at that time that Carlos Osas was in his early stages of um, doing surveys for what became a monograph for the parapsychology foundation regarding um, apparitions and experiences um, witnessed by physicians and nurses Um, especially around the deathbed as well. This survey was later expanded on and you can find it in the book At the Hour of Death, which was written by Carlos Osis and Elenda Haraldson as well. Um, But that that was the meeting point because of Alex working in the hospitals and Carlos doing these surveys at the time. Um, The two of them met up and that's when Alex spoke about all of the experiences that he'd had since a child and that he believed he could go out of body at will. And we would class Uh, OBEs and certainly NDEs, near-death experiences, as an aspect that would support survival. If consciousness personality is allegedly operating outside of the body, then can it do it independently after the body has died as well? Um, So they wanted to test Alex for these abilities, and he was very much happy for this to happen. So over that 20-year period, those tests developed more and more. But the one that's advertised the most appeared in the 1980s, um, edition of the Journal of the American Society for Psychical Research. they had done several pilots before then. Um, there was an edited book on, um, I think it's called Mind Beyond the Body by D. Scott Rogo, that mentioned several of these studies because they were um, not only carried out on Alex Tanis, but also Pat Price and Keith Harari as well. Um, when he was going by, the name Blue Harari, So he's mentioned in there, they got these um, unique subjects. I think Ingo Swan as well was involved in those. And um, Alex was one of the test subjects as well. Um, so there were several pilot studies, several assistants working with Carlos Osis. But the one for this main study that um, got a lot of attention, the um, assistant was Donna McCormick as well. Um, really successful. Um, what was uh, happening was uh, Alex was in the perception lab. What we'd also might call a Gansfeld booth, um, four rooms away across the landing in the American Society for Psychical Research. I think it's on the third floor or so. And he's in there. The researchers are four rooms away and they've got an intercom system so they can speak to him. And they've also got uh, control of an optical illusion device that's in the next room. And it's probably about this big uh, and no more than four foot high off the floor. It's still there in the exact same position to this day. Um, you know, nothing's really been moved around or anything. It's, it's nice in a way, but it's also disturbing in another way. Um, but what's inside that box is a spinning disc, um, with four quadrants, your upper left, upper right, lower left, lower right. Um, I think four potential colors and five potential symbols. And the symbols were decided by, by Alex. He loved ancient Egypt and these symbols that were included are based on hieroglyphics. So there's, um, a man, holding a stick, which is an image of Anubis holding a stick. There is the key of life, which was the symbol for the cross that they, they named it. There was a feather and an eye, the eye of Horus. And there was one other symbol. I can't remember what it was. Um, but anyway, those are the, the things that he had to uh, come out with. So as he's in the perception lab, allegedly going out of body four rooms away to peer down and look through this this viewfinder, there's just one one lens in which you can see into the device when a lamp is on, like a little projector. Every time there is a trial, Carly says, okay, trial one is ready for you. He'd have to say what quadrant it is, what color it is, and what symbol. So it could be lower left, red eye. And so three things each time. They also had a strain gauge in the room as well to actually look for any physical deformations that were going on within the local vicinity. So if something was additionally going into that room, especially like an actual physical person going in there, the strain gauge would become active. Now, they tested this, first of all, with people off of the streets of New York City, just as a a sort of a beta test, really. And um, when they tried that out, no one got anywhere near significance with the symbols and no one got strain gauge activity whatsoever. With Alex, every time he got a string of hits right, um, quadrant, color, or symbol, they were getting increased strain gauge activity with him. What they did is really important because the overall significance of those studies was calculated on adding up how many times he got one thing right, color, quadrant, or symbol, how many times he got two of those right, and how many times he got all three of those right as well. It got some correspondence. So the first one was from Julian Isaacs, I think, and that was to say, you guys don't know how to use strain gauges, essentially. That was published only in the very next year. Osis and McCormick responded instantly and mentioned how they'd used them before and that they did know how to use strain gauges. It was being used in the right context. There was no further rebuttal. It seems that he was happy with that. The most important one, I think, is a year later, 1982, Susan Blackmore said that she calculated the outcome and said you're not handling statistics properly. If you're just adding up how many times he just got one right, then the overall significance isn't that great at all. You know, it's like close to 55% or something as a chance of getting it right. And they responded on the very next page and said, no, no, so you've misunderstood. One right, two right, three right, combination of all of those together. That gave a significant overall finding. And the studies sort of fade away from that point. um, that, There are further studies, but as unpublished reports in boxes in the ASPR and in in some of the archives. We've just got to do more digging. I'm just surprised no more was published on it. But Sue continued to talk about it. She certainly did in her book, Beyond the uh, Out-of-Body Experiences and at a Parapsychology Foundation conference, but she didn't seem to mention the rebuttal very much.
0: As, as I recall, at one point you suggested uh, in your book uh, that these tests showed he was about 90% accurate in, in identifying these symbols.
1: That was... Uh, that needs clar- clarifying a bit more. That came from some of the media reports where when they'd observed single trials, they were saying that on average, when it came to getting hits out of that, he was scoring 90% hit rates. So that could be potentially um, from every time he was getting one right, if they were just basing that on symbols. So they were for just single observations. Alenda Haroldson Haraldson reported that as well, uh, that I think he mentioned in the Paranormal Review when he was recollecting going to the ASPR and he said he was always scoring extremely high every time he went there, and he observed Alex over a week, but by the end of the week, he was only scoring by chance. So he'd have to go away and come back a few months away and then come back for a week, and it'd be this classic decline effect. He'd be really good for the first few days, significant results, and then over time, they'd start to decline. So I think if we revise conversation with Ghost, there needs to be a bit more clarity to that comment on 90% because it's from observations of observers and when they tested it with the media and what they'd see in a single trial
0: at any rate uh, it seems pretty clear from from your book that alex believed himself to have uh strong extrasensory abilities so much so that uh, in visiting let's say houses where a poltergeist activity was alleged he believed he was able to enter into conversations with with as it says in the title of your book conversations with ghosts conversations with the uh, spirits that were haunting that location. And, and by virtue of those conversations was able to quiet the, uh, disturbing poltergeist activity.
1: Yeah. Whatever was going on in his mind. I mean, I always find it interesting when, when I interact with mediums, maybe you feel the same, Jeff, that you just think, well, due to the nature of what I do, I'm going to be sympathetic to your claim. But the frustrating thing is I just want to get inside your head because you know, if you are not doing this, it's a very you know, you are really kind of convincing yourself that, that this is actually going on. It's a very impressive act in some instances, and it's weird when you read the account. Sometimes he'd just he'd be there with Carlos and sometimes some other colleagues, and he'd just go off and sit in a corner uh, and just start chatting, and he'd just he believed as a person that could allegedly communicate with the dead that he'd, he'd be able to find people that have died at different time periods. And he believed that in this out-of-body state, um, they weren't capable of realizing each other. And yet they are people that would have realized each other, been close or companions, whatever, when alive. And he would be the ghost counselor, as he called it, and would try and marry them back up again. Um, so sometimes he could dis- uh, stop the disturbances happening. This isn't, again, the first time this kind of claim has come up from someone with professional qualifications. There was a psychologist from Brazil, I think their name was Ferreira or something like that. In 2015 or 2016, there was an open paper in the Australian Journal of Parapsychology where they talked about how they, as a medium as well as psychologist, um, were counselling the dead for post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, this something like this could not go through peer review because you know how do you even assess that? Um, it's it's someone that's clearly scientific by background, but what they're doing is you know very difficult to to really you know challenge that claim. So what they did um, in the AJP was they did um, an open open peer review policy for that issue, and some appeared in the next issue as well. So all the potential reviewers that could have read that paper. They read the paper, wrote a comment, and it became a paper that went along with it. So they did publish it, and every every paper you read after that in the issue were, were other scientists' comments on, well, what do you actually make of this, which I think was very unique. But I think Alex is one of the more classic people that really started to do this, and he he, he seemed to be honest. Certainly when they went to the, the Amateurville Horror House, as it was known, he was completely blunt when it came to his opinion on that as well.
0: Uh, In some of the cases that you describe in your book, and I recommend the book to our readers because it's one of the most fascinating accounts uh, I've ever come across, he he describes uh, discussing with these ghosts, as he calls them, historical events that were later confirmed through historical research. Things concerning fires and murders and uh, folklore uh, regarding various houses.
1: Yeah, I I think it's a very gentle book. It's certainly by no means an an academic textbook on ghosts and the research that have been done. It's documentary style. It's very first person. Um, You can see Alex's voice shines through. um, So he's just talking you through his experiences and opinions. All I've done really where I kind of come in is provide a a brief introduction to who he was, because this was the first book coming out that was reintroducing him. Um, but, yeah, there are loads of instances of that where he'd done local things in, in uh, Portland, Maine, uh, where he ended up. He was born in Van Buren, Maine. Uh, there was even a, a castle in Maine, even though it was an old cottage. It had got this turret on the side of it, which is absolutely um, beautiful. And he went there and he picked up on the fact that people had previously experienced He, he was saying to the people that he was with, maybe Carlos, you know, I'm getting the feeling that frequently people will feel what feels like a dress. Brushing by their arm and I feel things are flying from the shelf and there's certain doors that in particular in this area that are being shut and people are making a point of making them very shut and then they're open and what had happened were indeed some of those very things people had experienced the bed sheets being pulled off them something that felt like a dress going by them picture frames have been flying off the wall and then going behind other items of furniture at the other side of the room so they'd end up behind a cupboard. One of the most fascinating things though was a door that kept on opening that was being repeatedly locked so one person took it upon themselves to nail the door shut and it was only in walking away from the door they had uh, heard it suddenly smash open again and the lock's undone and all the nails have come out so you know classic you know haunted house kind of scenario and Alex was there. There's some other ones where he, he'd picked up on the idea that there were people buried one of them a little boy beneath the house and believed that he was um involved with abraham lincoln and he talks about the connection there how that this boy got to meet abraham lincoln as well so there's, there's a few really nice tales
0: the interesting thing to me and i i wish it had been emphasized more that other researchers had picked up on it he had a theory about how uh, poltergeist events occur and how they can be cleared. And he made a distinction, uh, because the, the most common interpretation of poltergeist events back then, as I recall, is that there's usually a disturbed teenager who has repressed anger and that psychokinetic manifestations as well as a certain amount of fraud uh, comes because of the activities of this teenager. And He's saying, well, he ignored all those cases. those He, he didn't consider real poltergeist cases. He was only interested in cases where there was no teenager involved but, but ghosts instead and he claimed that these ghosts just want to tell their story and once he could listen to their story the the unfriendly poltergeist manifestations would abate
1: yeah i mean that goes back to this idea of being a ghost counselor again and he also mentioned um He talked about this idea called the spiraling effect. I mean, they're all his own personal ideas as someone that's claiming psychic abilities, that there's no real way of testing it and there's no real way of observing it either for you or I. But for for him, he he seemed deadly serious about it. And um, it's interesting that sometimes he'd take that radical approach because particularly around that time, the 60s and the 70s, um, you know, poltergeist phenomena, people were, were getting very serious on the idea that adolescence... Were the cause of some of this phenomena because, um, especially during that time into the late seventies, you got the Enfield poltergeist that had uh, hit worldwide news uh, that was published in the book "This House Is Haunted" by Guy Playfair. That re-emphasised this whole idea of adolescence, um, but we see it in some classic cases throughout time. I always like the the Gyra ghost from nineteen twenty one with Minnie Bowen. As well, similar scenario, when she was about, all kinds of activity was happening. And when you took her out of the property, it lessened. It didn't stop, but it lessened so. And the same thing happened with the Enfield poltergeist. Um, but I find it interesting that he, he removes that element, thinks, you know what, well, I'm not so interested in that. And it is it's dodgy territory because it's opened so much fraud and accusations. Even to this day, when we talk about Enfield, there are some very much what Rupert Sheldrake might describe as dogmatic sceptics that would still say, oh, the the children were clearly committing pranks. They admitted they did on occasions. And it's hard to tell some of those people sometimes that, well, if you're living with it for two years, two years of investigators being in the house... They're kids. They're going to joke about, they're going to play about, and at the other time, when they're crying and when they're scared, it seems it's gone beyond a joke and something genuine might be happening. You know, it's it's worth, as scientists, people trying to investigate this seriously, to check out the claim. But Alex has got another way of seeing the world because of what he's claiming. So, he separated himself from that. Other researchers were focusing on the adolescents. He wanted to look at the classic haunting.
0: Well, it certainly seems that Carlos Osis, a researcher who worked with him for 20 years, uh, was buying into his worldview uh, with the idea that uh, something needed to be reconciled with these ghosts, that the, the word reconciled was used by both of them. Uh, and and it seemed to happen. The, the phenomenon would, uh, as, as I mentioned, would abate after Alex's intervention.
1: Given the stuff that I've worked on recently, because I edited together his book, Science Psychotherapy, and th- there's a lot of overlaps when we look at things like the placebo effect, and I think some of that was coming into it. He'd worked with um, uh, a vicar from... St. Bonaventure University. He even wrote um, a book on pastoral care and the paranormal, I think. But anyway, Alex wasn't taking that approach, even though he he was a religious man. Um, But he wanted to take that scientific approach. But you can see the same principle as to when someone goes in and exercises the property and people might say, well, nothing's happened ever since. Well, some people might feel that way when they want an investigator in as well. And they think, well, the investor came in, they did what they did, they found some conventional explanations, and I feel it's made it better. It is like taking that sugar pill. I'm having these problems, someone has come to help me, therefore I feel better. And we've got the instance with the haunting. Someone came in who is a professional of this, they checked it out, I'm not experiencing it anymore. And if it was natural bangs and raps and taps of the building as temperature changes throughout the day and weather conditions... uh, those bangs, wraps and taps may still be happening. But because you've experienced Alex going into the property or someone else, you're just integrating those normal, uh, those noises and other phenomena into day-to-day life and you're not really recognising them anymore. So um, I can understand how Carlos on that level may have appreciated it as well because you could see on a clinical parapsychology level, forget the phenomena somewhat, how's it impacting the person who's living with it? And it seems that you know there's positive outcomes to what they did.
0: Well, so are, are you suggesting that uh, the placebo effect might account for all of the reported uh, abatements?
1: Um, I don't think all, but certainly uh, I think it can apply to quite a few instances where the the is quite minor. We're not talking about sofas being thrown across the room and sudden uh, outbreaks of fire and things like that. I'm talking about strange rapping noises and hearing footsteps up and down the stairs, something that, compared to the, the physical effects, those macro effects, it's it's nothing. Uh, they're very subtle, so people after that might just integrate them, but I think there will be some other cases where, you know, get a priest in or get an investigation team in, and that's not really going to change what's going on.
0: Uh, and that's understandable. These things are just so mysterious. Uh, <laughs> they, they seem to pretty much defy almost every attempted at explanation.
1: I was just going to say, here's one case for you that just shows I me. Mean, I love the blasé attitude. Um, I need to follow this up for the, the SPR, but I live in, old, in an old cottage. This is a blacksmith's cottage from 1800, and it's on an fo- old farm unit. So next door, joined to my cottage, is the main farmer's house. And they've lived there for a number of years now, and they're, they're still doing it up. It's When you live in an old building, you're constantly mending and fixing, and it becomes quite a hobby. And I was hoping that there'd be something unusual in this cottage um when moving in and no not really but uh, my next door neighbor he cornered me a few weeks ago and he said uh, this will interest you i was uh, up in the attic not so long ago a couple of days ago and he has his boys come and stay every few months he has to pick them up and then they stay for a, about a week or so and the attic space they've got is really tall it's got converted bedrooms in it and some gym equipment and he was up there and there's one room to get in and out and he was up there and was doing what he was doing then he turns to go out and he sees someone about six foot tall or so walk past the main door to get out because there's alcoves either side and could describe the kind of clothing the guy was wearing took him back and shocked him because his kids aren't that tall but he thought well who else is in the house and is brave enough to leave because it's the only way out goes down to the kitchen and sure enough his boys are there with his partner and he says to the boys you know okay joke's a joke but which one of you was just in the the attic right now? Neither of them admitted to it. They said we weren't up there. And his partner says she she says both of the boys were were here. They've not left at all. He says I swear I've just been in the attic, and someone has just walked past the main door to get in and out. And his partner said, "Oh yeah, that's that's Farmer Bob." And he said, "Excuse me, yeah, that's Farmer Bob. I, I've been seeing him ever since we we moved in. Didn't you know? No." And she said, "Oh." can't do anything about it. I just took it as the norm. And he was just so taken back that his partner, she'd taken it as just a day-to-day occurrence. What are you going to do about it? And he was so skeptical that he'd never experienced any of this until he was in this right place at the right moment, saw the exact same figure she'd allegedly been seeing. And she'd even named the guy, said, oh yeah, that's Farmer Bob. Just ignore him. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well well that story um suggests at least the possibility that that there is what we would call a, a super-sensible world that sometimes uh becomes visible uh, sometimes even quasi physical uh, uh for people and and that it may well be that uh, talented psychics such as alex tanis who because of uh, their extended perceptions have an ability to interact with that world and, uh, and the consequence of that is uh, real effects in in our a day-to-day physical world
1: it's certainly impressive if as you mentioned from the book it comes hand in hand with that veridical information he's making this claim and he's saying this is what they're saying this is what they did go check this out and it turns out to be correct the only skepticism you can then place on that is that he knew where he was going and he'd done a bit of research beforehand um, but then you've just got a question well how accessible was that information in the first place as well so there's all those levels to it but I think some a nice slice of veridical information thrown into the mediumship in the haunted location really helps
0: well it would really be wonderful to be able to get your hands on the notes left by dr osis
1: yes that that would be helpful there must be so much more because they, they were planning so much more writing and alex must have done about six to seven manuscripts in total and yet by the time that he passed away only three had come out and he only saw two of them so 1967 was his autobiography beyond coincidence 1979 with Catherine Fair Donnelly. Um, He published, Is Your Child Psychic? Discussing childhood experiences and how to test your children. 1990, just after he died with Timothy Gray, was a book called Dream Symbols and Psychic Power. That was all based on classes he'd given in parapsychology at the University of Southern Maine, which was offering credit for taking this parapsychology module. And he did dream interpretation classes. And it was from hundreds of people going through this course and how day-to-day activity was relating to certain things they dreamt about, it led to this very good dream interpretation book that a lot of people have bought and kept as a bedside table reading to actually, you know, I had a very strange dream about horses. What does that mean? And they've looked it up. Um, But beyond that, he'd written books on, um, as as we've mentioned, ghosts, um, using psychics in psychotherapy himself, particularly throughout the 80s, and um, the Bermuda Triangle as well. He did a lot of research on that and also going out to Egypt as well and holding uh, spiritual development groups there.
0: Uh, you know, I gather that uh, conditions at the American Society for Psychical Research have changed a great deal since uh, the work done by Alex Tanis and Carlos Ossis and uh, uh, They, in fact, have put their building up for sale and are apparently in some financial distress. So, I just hope that uh, those records and those boxes that you were able to see when you visited in 2015 eventually become accessible.
1: Well, I, I think I'd say without anyone listening, watching that is in New York City or taking a trip there sometime, um, the website's still up for the American Society for Psychical Research. They have opening hours. I would recommend making a telephone call, send a letter or turn up at the door and go in, check out the library. They're, they're open on appointment for you to go and look around, peruse the library and check out the, the records, check out the books, check out the rooms that Alex did this research in. They're all open for that. And, uh, you know, I'd certainly love to, to hear your feedback on that and what you think.
0: Colum Cooper, thank you very much for uh, sharing your uh, research and, uh, on one of the most fascinating characters in the history of parapsychology.
1: My pleasure, Jeff. There's so much more to come. Another book, and we're, we're going to put together a, a fuller biography on Alex Tanis as well that's been uh, in the works with people like Polly Bunnell and um, Fred Frolic as well. Um, it's been going on for about the past 10 or 15 years, so it's, it's going to be a lot bigger and so many more stories to tell.
0: Well, you're doing excellent research, and I look forward to the prospect of uh,
1: several more interviews with you in the future. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jeff. You take care, and see you again soon.